John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. John 2, 1 through 12. Next week is Easter, so we'll be uh, obviously that week uh, talking about the resurrection. In two weeks, we'll have our last sermon in John, which will finish up John chapter 2, and then we'll begin an eight-week series on the seven churches of Revelation, the letters to the seven churches of Revelation. So those who have asked me to preach about Revelation, you're finally getting your answer. It's just probably not the part of Revelation you were talking about. Sorry. Uh, we're going to do the letters to the seven churches and chapters 2 and 3 uh, to round out my time with you. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. The mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jar, water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it, and the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory. His disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Right, so we have recently begun looking at Jesus' public ministry, his first ministry. At the end of chapter 1 is calling uh, five of his disciples. We don't know when the other seven joined the party. Just at some point in the future of the book, there will be 12. And there's no process outlined for getting from 5 to 12. But Jesus calls his first few disciples in chapter 1. And this begins a section of John that's often, often referred to as the book of signs. John can largely be split into two parts with the prologue kind of existing on its own. Chapter 1 kind of stands off by itself. Then you have the book of signs and the book of glory. And the book of signs focuses on just a handful of miracles which Jesus performs in his earthly ministry. And these are referred to by John the Evangelist as signs. They are pointing out something. They are showing the glory that Jesus has in himself. But then, in the second half of the book, the book of glory, it focuses on the Father revealing his glory in the Son. So really, the book of signs, which goes up through chapter 12, transitions into the book of glory, which is going to be primarily focused on the cross. It's going to primarily be focused on the crucifixion. But here, we have the first of the signs that John records about Jesus, or that Jesus performs. This begins a, a subsection, even in the book of signs, that really dwells on an idea of replacement. So here, in the, the, the story of the feast at Cana, the story of the wedding at Cana, turning water into wine, we have the first story of replacement, where we have these old purification vessels that were filled with water, and then what happens to the water of purification? It is replaced with wine. 
And all of the significance of that is not unpacked directly in this text, but it comes from the rest of the Bible. But there's this replacement. The water of purification is replaced with the wine of celebration. In the rest of chapter 2, which we'll be in in two weeks, we see the old temple, which Jesus says he can tear it down, and in three days it'll rise again. So there's this replacement of the temple with Jesus himself. In chapter 3, there's a replacement of natural birth and spiritual birth. Uh, Nicodemus asks Jesus, how can a man be born again when he is grown? And Jesus says, you need to be born both of water and of the spirit. There's this replacement of physical birth with spiritual birth, of membership in God's covenant community of Israel through your biological heritage being replaced with membership in Christ's community being secured by a new birth, a spiritual heritage. So there's replacement there. In chapter 4, the story of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, the water of Jacob's well is replaced with living water, a greater water. Not only that, the worship in Jerusalem and Gerizim, the, the Samaritan temple location, uh, Jesus replaces that and says that true worship happens in spirit and in truth. So throughout these first few chapters, these first few signs, there's this consistent changing of the guard. This is the way it was. This is the way it is now. And we go from the old to the new. And here in the feast, uh, at the wedding feast, the changing of the water into wine, we see the first indication of this theme. This account is prone to being allegorized where everything has this incredibly deeper meaning and you got to find all these special meanings. The reason that happens is because it's really kind of a basic, simple account. It's a story that we all probably know. Uh, maybe coming in this morning, you weren't thinking, I know what John 2 is about, but if I say Jesus turned the water into wine, I doubt there's anyone in this room who's going to say, what? He did what? I never heard about that. We've all heard this story throughout our lives, most likely. So it's prone to be allegorized because it kind of seems a little bit irrelevant. It's prone to be turned into a purely spiritual meaning. And I think we need to be careful of doing that, but we also need to understand that John uses a lot of symbolic language. John, John uses symbolism to communicate certain things about Jesus, and that is certainly true in this account. So if we're going to properly understand the meaning of Jesus turning water into wine, we have to start with why John wrote it. And from the beginning of the series, they've said that pretty much every week we're going to quote the same verse of the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 31. These were written that you might believe and that believing you would have life in his son. So the things that are written in this book are written to generate faith in Jesus, the son of God. And so, if that's John's purpose, if we're going to understand the, the miracle of turning water into wine, we're going to understand it as God intends us to understand it, when through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John records it, then we're going to have to understand it in the context of how does this generate faith in Jesus? How does this story point me to the life-giving, incarnate Word of God? we see in Jesus. And if we're looking with that intent at this text, we're going to see certain characteristics of Jesus through God's revelation of this event in his life. 
Specifically, we're going to look for three facts that we can see about Jesus when he turns water into wine. So the first fact that we can see is simply that he is human. We see that Jesus is human. We have been invited to come and see. That's what chapter 1 ends on. Come and see greater things than these. And so what are we seeing? We're seeing that Jesus is human. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, this is not an incredibly meaningful two verses of Scripture, right? This isn't one that you're going to hang on your refrigerator when you get home today. This isn't, there's not a lot of depth here, we might even say. However, what do these two verses communicate to us about Jesus? First of all, on the third day. So this is three days after a previous event. Uh, it's giving us time indicators. It's saying this is something that happened. We're dealing with history. We're dealing with narrative. This isn't a poem. This isn't some imaginary story. It's not a parable. On the third day, as Jesus is progressing through his earthly ministry, this happens on a specific day. I don't think we should read too much into the fact that it's the third day and try and find symbolism here that this is something about the resurrection. I think we're stretching too far to go there. But we are grounding the events of this chapter in history. It happened on a date. Dates are significant like that. They, they remind us of events. We all know certain dates in our lives. Maybe a date of a birthday. This week was Ainsley's fourth birthday. And we remember that date. We, we celebrate it because that date is a reminder of her entrance into our family. December 7th, 1941, a day that will live in infamy. September 11th, 2001, big moments that we remember in our lives, things that stand out to us as significant. And so here, there's a date, something happened. Not only do we see that this is a specific date, a specific time in history, we see that there was something happening on this day. There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. John does not spend a lot of time, really any time, on the actual birth of Jesus. Uh, at Christmas time, if we're looking for a Christmas reading, no one turns to John. They turn to Luke or Matthew. Uh, they don't really turn to Mark either. But they, they turn to one of those texts that records all the detail, the shepherds and the angels and the wise men and Herod and mangers and donkeys and, and several made-up details that we think are in the Bible because we've heard songs about them so much. But we, we look elsewhere for the details of Jesus' birth. But here in John, he doesn't give us that. But he does remind us of something significant about Jesus. Jesus, Mother Mary. So Jesus, the Word become flesh, has a mother. The humanity of Jesus is, again, subtly emphasized here in this text. Jesus has a mother. Not only does Jesus have a mother, though, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Jesus had friends. Jesus was invited to the party. So there's this wedding feast. They're thinking, who should come to our wedding feast? And on that list is Mary, but also Jesus. They say, Jesus, come and enjoy this wedding feast with us. He's a real person. He, he has relationships with people. 
He's not going to be welcomed in this community eventually as he starts preaching the gospel, as he starts preaching and revealing himself to the community. He's going to be rejected, but he grew up here. He is the son of the carpenter. And at other times, he's referred to as the carpenter, which is one of the reasons we think Joseph had probably passed away at this point. And Jesus had taken over the family business of carpentry. He's 30 years old. He's not just a child who suddenly appears on the scene. He has 30 years of history in this region of Galilee. He is a real person with real relationships. So we see, even in these small details that may not have great theological significance uh, at face value, we see these consistent reminders that the Word, this mighty Creator who sustains the world as revealed in chapter 1, the Word is a man, a person in history, in the world which He has created. So, first of all, we see that He is a man. But second of all, we can see that He's not beholden to anyone. He is not faithful to Mary's instruction. He's faithful to his father's instruction. Verse number three. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So imagine you're at one of these feasts. The groom is responsible for the feast. This is a, an honor culture, a shame and honor culture. So the, the opinion of the community is very significant to you. Even in our society, uh, 50 years ago, we were much more of a shame and honor culture. There were certain behaviors that you just didn't do in public, even if you did them. Uh, now, since then, that's, that's changed pretty radically in our world. But in Israel, there's particularly a focus on shame and honor, on, on saving face is what they'd call it in Asia, of looking good to the community around you. So you're the groom, you're at this wedding, and you run out of wine. Well, that shows that you're incompetent. It might show that you're poor. You wouldn't want people to think that. It, it reveals these terrible things about you. Well, apparently, Mary is somehow closely enough related to the family that's, that's celebrating this wedding that she's the one who notices the problem and tries to fix it. So she comes to her son, Jesus. Now, it's an interesting question. What, what does Mary know about Jesus at this point in time? Like, she knows something is up, the whole virgin birth thing. You probably wouldn't forget that. Uh, the angels coming to her, like those sorts of things. Yeah, she's good. she knows Jesus is special. But this is his first miracle. She does not know that Jesus has the power to turn water into wine. Yet she comes to him and says, Jesus, we're out of wine. And clearly, based on Jesus' response, she's expecting him to do something about this. So the question is at, has been asked, what, what does she know? It's entirely possible that Mary is just coming to Jesus because this is her oldest son, and she's someone that she relies on. He's someone that she relies on. And so he's taking care of the problem since dad died. He can take care of this problem. We don't, we don't know exactly what she knows, but there is this level of confidence in her son that allows her to come to him and say, they have no wine. And Jesus' response, particularly in our modern language, sounds very harsh, right? Woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, if I were to refer to my mom, she was visiting this week, and she came in, and I just started calling her woman all week while she was at my house, I think my dad would have some words with me. 
Uh, it'd be like going back to high school when I was consistently reminded how much more my dad loved my mom than he loved me. Uh, he, he wouldn't like it if I referred to her as woman, or even if I referred to my wife as woman. That would be, I, I occasionally do it jokingly, but it, I only do it because it's so obviously not the way that I view her. Or even in the church, like, is there any setting in modern society where referring to someone as, hey, woman, uh, would not be considered demeaning? I, I don't think there is. However, that's simply just not the case at the time Jesus is using this, this language. In English, it doesn't convey this well. It's not dear mother. I believe it's the NIV translates it dear mother. That's too affectionate. He is giving some distance here, but it's not insulting. He's not insulting his mother, but he is separating himself from his mother to some extent. And he says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? So Mary comes, says, Jesus, they're out of wine. He says, well, okay. Well, why, why am I interested in this situation? What, what do I care about the, the level of wine that we have available to us at this, at this feast? But Mary wants him to do it. However, there's just this sense that Jesus isn't going to do this just because Mary wants him to. Because he then goes on and says, my hour has not yet come. Now, that's a common phrase in John and other Gospels. As Jesus is performing these signs, he's moving towards the cross. But there are things that Jesus needs to accomplish before he ever gets to the cross. There are lessons he needs to teach. His disciples need more instruction before Jesus leaves them. His disciples need to see more evidence of who he is. The nation needs to see more evidence of who he is. And it's not time for him to be inaugurated as the Messiah. And it's not time for him to die. So Jesus, throughout the beginning of his ministry, a lot of what he does, he does these spectacular signs and says, okay, guys, don't tell anyone about this. Right? I don't want you to share this news with anybody. I know you just saw me make someone who's never walked in his life stand up. And I know you've met, you just watched me make a blind man see, but let's just not tell anyone about this. Seems kind of odd, but it's this whole idea that his hour has not yet come. He's anticipating the time when the Father determines what he's supposed to do. Jesus is not in a hurry for Israel to see him as he is. And so what he's saying here when he's talking to Mary is very similar to the rest of his ministry where he says, I don't do what I want to do. I don't do what you want to do. I do what the Father wants, to do, wants me to do. He doesn't totally flesh that out here, but he's going to spend, John is going to focus on that for the second half of this book, that Jesus is serving the will of the Father on earth. And so even in Mary, Jesus does not find someone who is ultimately his authority. He has a purpose. His hour has not yet come. However, I like Mary's response. Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? Mary simply says, do whatever he tells you to do. You almost, like, you kind of have this commentary going on. As you, as you see this interaction, you're like, Mary, he just kind of shut you down. So what makes you think that he's going to tell the, tell the servants to do anything? Yet Mary, in faith, believes that Jesus is going to take care of her. This is kind of germ of faith that Mary has. Not necessarily faith that Jesus is the Son of God who is going to die and be raised again the third day and ascend into heaven 40 days after that, but this idea that Jesus is trustworthy. And so Mary trusts Jesus, displays some faith in spite of Jesus' gentle rebuke. 
and tells the servants to do whatever he tells you. And what happens? Well, we see the third thing. We see the power of Jesus. We see that Jesus is powerful, but his power has kind of two sides. There is a physical power, but there is also a spiritual power in Jesus. Verse number six. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and people have drunk freely, then the poor, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory. So Mary says, do whatever he tells you. What does Jesus tell them to do? Fill up six stone water jars, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. These stone water jars, particularly there for the Jewish rites of purification. And then they serve the water, and the water's not water anymore, it's wine. It's interesting, like what's the part of the story you want to hear the most about? Like, how does Jesus turn water into wine? Yet, it's not even, it, it doesn't really even say that he does. It just kind of gives us the result. He says, fill the water, go take it to the, to the head of the feast, and then the water that was wine. It doesn't say the water became wine. It said that the water already, that, that it just, just kind of like an observation of fact. You'd think that there would be this deep description, but Jesus' power is such that there's no focus on how he turns the water into the wine. Merely, Jesus said, go do this, and what he wanted to have happen, happened. He doesn't say some incantation over the wine. He doesn't put anything in it. There's other miracles where he's smearing mud on people's faces and stuff. Not this one. He simply says, here, take it. And when they take it, it's wine. I don't know how it happened. In fact, the language is, so, is not even precise enough that the, the vision that, we, that most of us have of filling the water, the pots up with water, and then dipping into the pots and taking wine out. It's possible that those pots were still filled with water and that they actually just continued drawing out of the well and the water in the well was where the wine was coming from. We don't need, we, you just can't make a, a strong case either way from the text here. We don't know how this happened, merely that when Jesus decides that water is going to be wine, something happens, water becomes wine. Jesus has power over nature. The wine is served and the guests enjoy it. This is not grape juice. It's wine. Everyone serves the good wine first and when the people have drunk freely, that is referring to drinking and becoming intoxicated to some extent. That's what that word means. Have drunk freely, then the poor, then the poor wine. So this wine that Jesus makes is good, well-aged wine of a good vintage. The master of ceremony says, wow, this is, this is the good stuff. Why are you saving this for the end of the feast? Jesus has control over everything. Now, I think it's interesting. How is wine made? Well, it's made by, I don't know the whole process, not something I'm particularly interested in as a general rule, but it's made over time. 
right? They take the grapes, they squeeze them, they age them, and over time it develops into good wine. The longer time it's developing, generally speaking, the more valuable the wine is. Yet here we have this instantaneous process. Jesus controls the wine. Jesus controls time. He controls everything that's happening here. Jesus is in authority over the creation. The word who created dwells in the world, but still maintains power over that world. But there's something even more significant here than merely the change from water into wine. Notice in verse 6, what are these jars for? Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So these jars are particularly made of stone. They're not made of clay. They're stone jars because a stone jar was able to maintain its purity. And the idea of the laws of purification in the Old Testament is that the people of Israel could be made unclean. And when they were made unclean, they could not approach God in worship. They could not go to the tabernacle or the temple. They had to be ceremonially cleansed. And we're somewhat familiar with those laws. They're kind of the strange laws that get brought up occasionally when people are trying to criticize the Old Testament. Uh, things like if there's blood coming out of you, you, you're unclean. The uncleanness in the Old Testament was not necessarily a sin. You could become unclean without ever sinning. It just was a natural process of life. You could be sick and be unclean. Everyone would be rendered unclean occasionally. And that those laws of uncleanness served to illustrate the fact that God and his people were separated. And so just doing your normal life as a human being, your distance from God was going to be reinforced. And when you came to worship God, you had to be cleansed. You had to follow certain rituals that signified the work that needs to happen for the unclean person to approach a clean and holy God. And these vessels were intended for that purpose. So a dirty person, not necessarily physically dirty, but someone who is ceremonially unclean, comes, these waters are the means that God has ordained for symbolizing their cleansing so they can approach it and worship. Now you can imagine if such a vessel uh, was necessary for cleansing the people, you would have to take good care of the vessel because if the vessel becomes dirty, it's not useful for creating cleanliness. So it's something, these vessels would be reserved for a specific purpose. You have enough former Catholics in here, that you, you've experienced the holy water, right? That it's reserved for a special purpose. You should not go swimming in the holy water. I mean, you can. Uh, the, the church might have a problem with it. I don't think there's a spiritual thing about the water. But uh, from the perspective of the Catholic church, you've got this consecrated special water. And it needs to be preserved for its purpose. These jars would have been similar to that. This, they have a purpose. Yet what does Jesus use them for? He uses them for his miracle. He uses them for changing water into wine. What's the significance of that? Just try and unpack the, the symbolism that's happening here. Jesus takes the thing that was a symbol of the separation between the Father and his people. The thing that was a, separa a, a symbol of separation between God and man. And what does he do? He uses it to turn water into wine for rejoicing and feasting. He transitions, he replaces these old water jars of purification with 
a celebration. Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah 25, verse number 6. Says this. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. So here in Isaiah 25, talking about the Messiah coming, the Messiah coming and restoring Israel, what's he described as doing? Part of it is a feast, including well-aged or aged wine, well-refined, well-aged wine. So the Messiah is going to come and he's going to deliver people from their oppressors. He's going to deliver Israel from their sin. And he's going to bring with him a feast, a celebration that includes partaking in well-aged wine and wine that has been well-refined. Isaiah chapter 55, verse number one, come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. So there's this invitation that's given in Isaiah 55, again, talking about the Messiah. He's going to come, and there's this invitation, come and buy wine without money and without price. So this wine is of such great value that you can't need money for it because you couldn't afford it. It's like the sort of thing where you go into one of those stores and there's no prices on anything and you know that if you have to ask how much it costs, you can't afford it. That's what's going on, Isaiah chapter 55. If you have to ask how much this bottle of wine costs, you can't afford the bottle of wine. And so here, this, this prophecy of Messiah is that he's going to bring wine that is not only, that not only do you get for free, you get it for free because it's priceless. You cannot possibly buy it from anyone. The value is so great. So the Messiah is going to come and he's going to save his people. And with that salvation is going to be feasting and celebration. So then the Messiah comes and, and John, John chapter 3, verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom. He who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase but I must decrease. So John's disciples are jealous because Jesus is gaining more uh, recognition than John was. So they come to John and they say, look, this guy's taking your thunder here. John says, I'm just a friend of the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom. Coming so hot on the heels of the account in chapter 2, you can get kind of, the, there's this, this shared symbolism here. Jesus is the bridegroom. Jesus is the one bringing the celebration. The bridegroom was the one in chapter 2 responsible for bringing the wine. But in chapter 3, Jesus is called the bridegroom. See, Jesus replaces 
those old rites of purification which did nothing to actually purify the people, merely symbolized that they must be purified to have access to God. And Jesus takes that and he says, here, use these pots for a celebration instead. He takes the darkness and the sadness of the Old Testament, the persistent reminder that God is in that tent and I am out here and I cannot go in that tent. That continual reminder, as Israel wanders through the wilderness, they see this gigantic building. The whole camp is arranged around the tabernacle. They're out here. God is in there, and they can't cross between the two. But Jesus comes, and he takes the symbols of that purification, those jars that would purify, and he takes them and he uses them not to purify, but to celebrate, because the bridegroom has come. And to put an even finer point on it, what is the last thing Jesus does before he's betrayed? He gathers his disciples together. He takes bread and cup. He says, this is the covenant of my blood. So reconciliation comes through the bridegroom. It comes through the blood. It comes through wine. There's this idea of replacement. And the Old Testament we are continually reminded by the law, which is serving as a schoolmaster, according to Paul in Galatians. It is good, but it is only good. And the fact that it points to our inadequacy, it points to the separation between us and God. And Jesus comes in and he takes that law and he breaks it apart. He fulfills it and he frees us from it. He frees us from the law. He delivers us. And now there's celebration and there is joy because our Lord, our Savior, is ultimately bringing us, reconciling us with God. And so what's the result? What do we do because we see this? Well, we respond in faith. Verse number 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. You see, when they are confronted with Jesus and the remarkable work that Jesus does where he takes the, the, these vessels that are, are for purification and miraculously creates wine, all, the miracle, the, the spiritual symbolism of it, the disciples see it and they believe. Why is John writing this? That you may believe. The purpose that he's writing this whole book is so we believe in Jesus. Jesus is the one who breaks down that barrier between God and his people. Jesus is the one who replaces the water of purification with the wine of celebration. Jesus is the one who provides access to God. And the call to us is to respond like those disciples respond. Like Mary responds, do whatever he says. Disciples believing in him. That's our only hope for life. That's our only hope for reconciliation with God. That is the only way that in our death we enjoy the wine of celebration, the feast that is prophesied in Isaiah 55. The only way we enjoy that is through a mediator, through Jesus, through the word become flesh. If you want to celebrate, if you want joy, that is where it is found. This morning, we're going to celebrate Jesus' death. 
We celebrate in communion in much the same as is kind of pointed to here. We celebrate by partaking of the bread and the wine, reminding ourselves that Jesus has provided access to God. Jesus is the one who cleanses us, not with water, not with water held in earthen vessels or in vessels of stone, but cleanses us with his blood so that we boldly approach our Father.